Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Ian Montgomery, one of the co-founders of Label Sessions. In this episode, we have a conversation with Andy Budd. Andy is a design leader, previously being the founder of Clearleft, the design transformation agency, and a founding member of Adobe's Design Circle. Now, he's a prolific startup advisor, investor, speaker, and design leadership coach. Andy truly is a designer at heart, and Maxine of Label Sessions talks to him to find out more. So Andy, thank you so much for kind of joining us today. Um, could you tell me a bit about yourself and kind of a, where, you're, where you're at today? Yeah, I mean, I guess I've, I've been working in the web now for, for a really long time, maybe sort of 20, 25 years. I started out kind of as a Flash um, designer and developer. I got into the web standards movement. I wrote, I think, maybe the third ever book on CSS uh, called CSS Mastery. So I had a kind of a, a fairly kind of um, developer background. But I guess in sort of uh, early sort of 2000, I discovered a thing called user experience design, which wasn't a thing at the time. And I founded the UK's first user experience agency and also the UK's and possibly Europe's first user experience conference called UX London. Um, I ran this studio that was very UX focused for about 15 years, you know, got sort of fairly well known in that space. Um, I saw during this time user experience go from being an unknown thing to being the default way that we delivered work to the point that people don't really talk about user experience as much anymore. Um, But then also what I saw is a lot of my friends and colleagues moving from designer to lead to manager. And so I found myself having the same conversations over and over again with people around the challenges they were facing making that move into leadership. Um, and at the time, I thought, well, rather than have like dozens of conversations with random you know, friends, you know, uh, but, but, you know, distinct conversations, I'll start uh, a conference. So I, for a while, I ran a conference called Leading Design, which, again, was one of the first kind of conferences that focused on the design leadership space. Off the back of that, I ran and set up a, a, an online community of about 3,000 heads, directors and VPs of design. So when it came time to kind of me moving on from my agency, I sold my agency to the team. So it's now employee owned. I started thinking about like, where could I have the biggest area of impact? And I decided that one of the areas that I would could have impact in was supporting these product leaders and these design leaders as they kind of try and grow their their impact. And so a couple of days a week, um, I support about a dozen or two dozen heads, directors and VPs of of product design. Um, And we can get into maybe the details of some of the conversations and challenges they face later. The other area I felt I could have impact was trying to bring more of a, a design and product focus to founders. Obviously, an agency, I've helped companies big and small. I've helped like little tiny startups that kind of grew into big businesses. And I've also helped, you know, worked with the founders of you know, the CEOs of Penguin Books and, and Virgin um, Holidays. Um, but I was really interested in how we could bake design in from the early stages. So I also spend two days a week as a, a VC. Um, I work at Seacamp. I, um, I, I find deals, I assess deals, and I work with the founders to help them deliver um on the promises they've made and so i'm really enjoying um supporting founders in their kind of growth journey and also off the back of that i also do private um advisory work so any any one time i'm advising maybe four or five startups who are going on a similar journey so that's it basically strong tech strong ux user-centered focused moved into supporting um 
design leaders and company leaders. Amazing. And it, now you, it's such an interesting kind of a portfolio career you have with different areas. So was that the career path that you had in mind? Yes and no. I mean, I think a lot of this comes down to my core values and mission. I know this sounds really weird, like an individual having a core mission, but I really believe in the power of great design and great product to change people's lives, improve people's lives for the better. Um, and I really think that companies are often missing a trick um, by not leaning into this kind of product-led growth sort of approach of building an amazing product and allowing that to be a big value generator and, and kind of um, attractor of customers. And so when I was in the agency world, obviously I was able to deliver on this um, promise to all of our clients. You know, maybe we'd have 10 or 20 clients a year, but that's quite limiting. One of the reasons I started the uh, the conferences is because I could extend that impact to hundreds and hundreds of people, all the people that come to our events. Um, one of the things I've noticed in the past few years is the impact that design agencies could have is kind of lessening. As people started bringing more and more of that work in-house, as people went from having no design teams to having quite sizable design teams, I realized that if I wanted to carry on having this impact, I needed to shift my focus. And so I had to shift my focus from being an agency leader to being somebody who supported founders and supported the designers and product people in those teams. So I think there's an argument that says it's kind of been a logical journey because I'm going where I can have the most impact. I don't think when I started my agency 15, 20 years ago, I would have thought that I would have been a VC and a coach. But I think, like I say, five or six years ago, it was clear that if I wanted to keep having as big an impact as I had before, I kind of needed to move in this direction and support internal teams and, and company leaders. It's so interesting because you're you're talking about, I guess, the the rise of design to prominence in, I, I guess it's always been in agencies, but in big corporates and enterprises in general. You've done so many different things with the design community from founding the businesses around focusing around UX and design and then really supporting the community. I wanted to ask you, why do you think that community is so important for the UX and design world? Is it different from other fields? I don't think so. I mean, you know, I think in any practitioner-driven role, community is important. You know, there are big communities amongst the developer, you know, uh, sort of practice. Often those communities because developers tend to outnumber designers kind of 10 to 1. There are many more developers in the world. And so those communities tend to focus on particular languages, particular techniques, particular approaches. But, you know, the developer community is is incredibly powerful. I think the same thing is true as product management. Like I've been lucky enough to speak at conferences like Mind the Product that has done a really good job of building a, a global community of, of product um, practitioners. I think marketing, I've spoken at the, you know, the Festival of Marketing in London and you know, the, the the size of the marketing community, I think, is probably 10x what, what it is in the design community, because I think partly marketing has been the route to acquiring customers for so many companies for so long. In fact, you know, I think quite often companies invest an awful lot of money in marketing, maybe more marketing, more money goes into marketing than the product, because I think it's been shown that you can have a mediocre product, but if you market it well, you can stand out from the crowd. I do think that in the last 10 years or so, with the rise of consumer level software, with the rise of smartphones, marketing 
is still hugely important, but having a great customer experience is important. You know, people will, you know, people can sign up to your apps really quickly. They can use them. If they don't get value, if they don't feel satisfied, they can bounce to the next customer or the next customer. So um, I think increasingly um, marketing's dominance being the only route to growth is waning. And I think a lot of companies are realizing that actually we need to compete by having the best product out there. And if we have an amazing product, um, we can build word of mouth kind of marketing and viral growth and kind of product-led growth, then actually we can be a multiplier of of marketing dollars. So this is this is my key, key thing. I still think marketing is hugely important. I still think sales is huge, hugely important. I'm actually in the process of writing a book purely on kind of um, uh, uh, growth and acquisition strategies. And I think they are a massively important part. But I think marketing and sales get so much easier if you have an exemplary product, if you have a group of people who your product is serving better than anybody else is serving it, then sales and marketing just becomes a doddle. I think it's much harder and it costs a lot more money if you have a mediocre product. My, my friend um, uh, John Wilshire talks about how you need to um, make products people want rather than make people want products. And I'm very much in agreement with that sentiment. If we can build products that people want, everything else becomes easy and it becomes a multiplier of your advertising and marketing spend. And I think the importance, so the importance of customer experience and that being the glue that holds it together, I think is really interesting because what happens when you have feature parity with many different products and services? How do you really stand out? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you, you got that from one of my previous talks, but I gave a whole talk um, at uh, the next web around um, the challenge of feature parity. I think it's really, really problematic. I think a lot of product companies or a lot of companies believe that they can't effectively compete unless they have feature parity, unless they are doing all the things that the competitors are doing. Um, and I think if you are working in an incredibly mature market, that might still have some justification. But my approach is if you are entering into a crowded market, you need to find a beachhead. And that beachhead is effectively a group of customers who are being underserved by the current incumbents. And you have found a particular problem that they are facing that is, is not being solved in a good enough way by the incumbents. And so what you need to do is rather than deliver feature parity, you need to find a subset of those features which you can excel at which you can do better than anybody else. And if you can do better than anybody else in a few of those features, and these are features that people really care about, actually some of the other feature parity questions sort of fade into, into the background. Let's say that you're running a startup, you know, in the, the, the HR space, and you've decided that you're servicing a market for companies that really, really care about the employee experience. You know, you want to you wanna hire people, but you want to make them feel really good about um, uh, working with you. Then there's probably some analytic stuff, which would be nice to have that all the other people have, but you can maybe forgo. There might be some other areas that, you know, of the product that, you, that, that everyone seems to have um, that, that you can also forgo because you're leaning into this belief that if we solve this problem, it will drive enough people over that then we can kind of build the time to build all the other the, the feature parity stuff in later. So I think you've got to find a beachhead market. I think you've got to find a beachhead um, feature set that you can be, you know, not 1.2x better, but 2x, 5x, 10x better at. And, and that allows you to kind of build a product without having to worry about feature parity so much. Within the, I guess, 
that space when people are making decisions around the features that are important for for for, for their customers and the beach users you mentioned. How do you what like do you have a perspective on data led decisions in design versus creative and design led decisions? I that's a really interesting question. I think one of the challenges is when you're looking at earlier stage companies, they typically don't have enough data to really make those data informed decisions. And actually you need to have quite a big product surface area in order to start gathering that. And you need to have quite a lot of resources in order to start um, capturing the data and making sense of it. Um, And I'm talking about kind of um, quant data particularly. In early stage companies, therefore, you're kind of, you're not really able to capture as much quant data, but you can do the qualitative stuff. And so there's a big movement at the moment, obviously, in the product management space of doing customer discovery, going out, talking to customers, understanding the domains, understanding their pain points. The challenge is, and I think this is where a lot of companies get a little bit stuck, is there's often a hope that the data you gather will tell you exactly what to do. There is always still a a leap of faith, a leap of inspiration. You know, we've talked to 20 customers and we have a belief that if we lean into this area, we will get some kind of traction and kind of market success. But the data will never tell you with 100% certainty that this is the right approach. Because if it did, everybody has access to that same amount of data and everyone will be doing the same thing. So there's no way of getting some kind of competitive advantage just by following the data. You have to have some kind of insight or belief or strategy that is driving you forwards. That being said, um, particularly as you start building that quantitative data can help you understand whether you're going in the right direction. You know, once you have the tooling in place, I'm a huge fan of, of multivariate testing. I'm a huge fan of um, uh, kind of coming up with a hypothesis, putting it out in the market and seeing which of your hypotheses gain, gains traction. And I think a big part of that is obviously, you know, I think a lot of people make decisions in this sort of fire and forget mode. They come up with an idea they, they launch a feature and then they're on to the next feature. They'll never see how that feature works. And I think one of the big problems is that we are supporting and implementing lots of features that don't like wash their own face. They don't um, support or, or, or bring in the kind of the um, the benefits that the, the, the cost of going, you know, the, the that benefits the cost that's gone into them. I think there's some kind of crazy stat, like something like 70 or 80% of features um, have almost zero impact in growth and, and in terms of you know utilization of the product. So I think we do need to be making better decisions. But I think um, I think particularly when it comes to quant data, you use that to tell whether your decisions are correct. I think it's much harder to just for the quant stuff to tell you exactly what the right thing to do is. And I think we you know I think bigger companies get a little bit nervous and hide behind um, quantitative data in hope that it will tell them what to do. Um, because it's a really good scapegoat. You can say, hey, I, you know, well, I didn't make a bad decision. The data told us to do this. So I think you need to do qual and quant um, both. You need to do both well. But I think at the early stage of any initiative, the qual stuff is usually where you're, you're leaning into. And now that you're kind of, a, I guess, dipping your toe in the kind of a VC world and supporting these kind of a early stage companies, do you find because they don't have the quant, the levels of quant data um, to help make decisions, does that kind of a, so what I'm curious at the type of conversations you're having at Seacamp and in, in, in the kind of a VC space? Well, I mean, I think, again, just 
I don't think data, I think data helps you inform decisions. I always get a little bit nervous when people say, talk about kind of data helping you make decisions. I think, I know it seems like a, a subtle sort of nitpicky kind of um, argument, but I think it still requires a decision maker and it still requires that leap of faith. And so I prefer to think about kind of gathering data in order to inform decisions. I also think you can gather too much data. I actually think so many of the people and companies I come across they are swimming in so much data, they can't make head or tail of it. And so what they do is they go, well, we'll go and gather even more data. And, and so it becomes this kind of vicious cycle. Um, so I think you do need to have, um, you know, I, I think actually, you know, the, there's a real skill in gathering just the right amount of data and just enough to inform the decisions to nudge you in the right direction, but not kind of going overboard to the point that you kind of get decision paralysis. I mean, we, we all know that like, you know, there's, there's research that shows, you know, if you go into a supermarket and there are five kinds of honey, it's easy to make a decision on what honey you buy. If there's 20 kinds of honey, you walk away with no honey in your shopping basket because there's so much stuff that you, you can't choose. And so I think data is a form of decision paralysis. In terms of my experience with the VC world, um, at the moment, I work in early stage, so pre-seed and seed. So these are companies that have um, maybe don't have a product. If they have a product, um, they don't have customers. If they have customers, it's a relatively small amount, usually doing pre a million dollars a year in revenue, so quite small amounts. And so the level of data they have is relatively small. So we make we make investment decisions based on a little bit more kind of gut, uh, you know, because we don't, there's not the data there to, to to inform the decision. So it's kind of interesting how early stage people is a lot more around kind of understanding the founders, understanding their history, understanding the the problem in the marketplace. Once you move into kind of series A, series B, series C, where you've got three, four, five years of 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 data, it's much easier to kind of see what kind of trajectory they're on. And so you tend to find that later stage VCs are much more data heavy. But I think in the early stage, you know, I think data is is um, is minimal at best, and so it doesn't play a big part in our, our decision making process. And how do you help the um, the founders of the companies you're working at with, who are kind of a seed and pre seed, with those leaps of faith? People need to make their own mistakes. You can tell people that they're doing something wrong or suboptimally, but often they need to keep going down their hypothesis until it proves wrong. And at that point, then they come to you and say, Andy, like we've done X, Y, Z, it hasn't worked. What do you think? And then I'll usually say, well, hey, remember that conversation we had three or four months ago? Maybe it's time to start thinking about that. So I think I think a lot of advisors try to kind of batter people overhead with their advice when when people are not ready or open to it. So I think finding the right timing to share advice in order to make it land properly, I think, is is a skill. But I think it very, very broadly, like there is a kind of a a hierarchy of needs that most of the people I support, founders I support have. The first one is obviously, how do we build our product? And so there are general user-centered principles. You know, I generally help them um, look at what they've built, provide feedback from a user-centered perspective, try and give them an understanding of how their customers might interact with their product and what the problems are. Um, so often that's a really good start because a lot of the time they haven't tested the product yet. And so having expert feedback can be really helpful. Once they've got the product going, um, then they need to start building their product machine. You know, usually early stage product is just a couple of people and an idea. Once you've got funding, then you're going from a team of two to 10 to 20 to 50. Most of these founders are first time founders. They've never built teams. And so 
a lot of the time I'm helping them build the machine that builds the product. So how do you find the right talent? How do you hire the right talent? How do you judge what good looks like? Once you've got people on board, what are the right processes to use to make things more, most efficient? There's no right or wrong way to do product, but there are tried and tested approaches that can improve your efficiency and speed to market. A lot of this is about speed to market. A lot about of this is about being able to test your ideas quickly. If you have an idea and it takes you a year to test it, um, you maybe only have one or two ideas, you know, one or two shops at goal. If you can get that down from one or two ideas a year to one or two ideas a month to one or two ideas a week to one or two ideas a day, at the end of the two years, you've had thousands of shops on goal. And there's a much higher chance that a couple of those um, goals might land. And so a big part of the early stage process is getting that efficient team and that process to maximize shots on goal and accuracy as well like there's no point just wildly kicking the ball you need to also build up your accuracy um then the the challenge becomes okay well this is great we've got a great product how do we acquire users and so the next big part of my role is to help founders understand how to to do that because most founders tend to be product people rather than sales people and so i help them figure out how to find their first thousand users, how to implement a sales strategy, how to implement a marketing strategy, how to implement a product-led growth strategy. This all wraps into kind of go-to-market, what's your go-to-market strategy. And, and you know, I, at the moment, I'm mostly helping small, you know, early-stage startups. But obviously, in my previous sort of role at Clear Left, I was doing the same thing for, you know, FTSE, S&P 500 kind of companies. So the same... You know, when you're launching a product, the same things apply. Um, and then ultimately, once you've got the, the the customers coming in, then it becomes more around kind of business building. You know, what is your company culture? Um, what are the values that you deem important? Um, what is your company strategy? How are you going to structure the organization? And so you tend to kind of level up and, and you know, with with the coaching work I do, like a lot of the people I'm coaching aren't in small companies. You know, I coach, I coach design and product leaders have got a hundred, 200 person teams. And so for them, a big part of that is the company building. How do we build culture? How do we build structures? How do we demonstrate the value that product and design can give to the business? And how can we, yeah, how can we align incentives, make sure that that we are delivering on the the, the 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 agreements that we've set with our, our our kind of business leaders, and so all of these things kind of sort of level up. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people around the world. We work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentorship, or sometimes to just collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. At Label Sessions, we really believe that great advice can change kind of a careers, businesses and industries. Um, so I wanted to take a moment to really kind of a tap into some of the advice that you've been given and that you give to others. So if we maybe kind of, a, I guess dial back a few years what advice would you give to your younger self and it doesn't have to be like work or design related but if you could do that what would you what would you say that's a really challenging question i i tend to be quite um you know 
I've been I've been quite fortunate in my career. Um, I am really comfortable where I am, and so I don't necessarily feel that there's anything that I have particularly done or, or would do differently. And so I, I'm not entirely sure that there's one piece of kind of like sliding doors moment where I'd have, <laughs> you know I'd have gone back in time and said, "Hey, I mean, you know, the, the glib answer is like buy Apple stock." You know, every time I thought about buying Apple stock, it's like, well, that's overpriced. And then five years later, it's 10 times the amount. Like, I wish I'd done that. So I think there is a kind of, a, you know, a, a um, back to the future sporting almanac kind of piece of advice I'd give to my give to my younger self. But in terms of in terms of some advice I give to um, founders and um, people who are earlier in their career, I, I do think picking your domain is really important. Um, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed working in the agency space. Um, but the agency space is quite a tough place to make margin. You know, if you're in an agency context, um, you are reliant on making money through staff because you, 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 you sell staff time. Um, typically most agencies struggle to make more, you know, to, to make more than double the, um, a cost of staff in terms of what they were able to to bring into the business. And so the value each staff member brings is usually maybe, you know, no more than 200K, 300K. If you look at a company like Apple, each staff member in Apple, I can't remember how much it is, but each staff member in Apple brings in something like $5 million in revenue. So if you are working in a company that has a really, really high um, revenue per employee, that gives you a huge amount of breathing room. As an employee, it means that you are much able to make the case for the value you deliver. You are much able to make the case for growing the um, salary you get because it's much harder if you're on 150K and the company only makes 200K out of you to, to justify growing your salary. Whereas I think if you're at Apple and you've got 5 million, then you know that, that, that becomes a much easier um, conversation. I think also revenue per employee, um, it switches management thinking from you are a cost to be managed to you are an investment and i think that that switch in mindset means that you are likely to be given more freedom to experiment you're likely to be given more resources because you are now treated again like a you know you're you're treated more like a, a premiership football player whereby you will have all of the, the the right coaching and the right support and the right equipment and the team around you because people know that you are generating a few million pounds a year rather than a few, you know, 100,000. Um, and I think also from a, a, a founder's perspective, if you can find yourself in an industry where they are typically have quite high um, revenue per employee, then there's just a lot more flexibility you can have. And and typically the, the, the top two leading sectors um, in, in in the economy are um, finance and tech. So, you know, you know it's in, in a weird kind of way, it's not deliberate, but I've landed in both. You know, I came from a tech background and, and I'm in the, in the finance world now in VC. But both of those things give you a really, really interesting advantage. Like if you are in a company that makes a two or 3% margin, um, it's really, really tough to to, to kind of um, deliver on some of the, the advice that people give you because you've got to earn all the money to, to, before you can invest. And the risk of doing something new is really, really hard. If you have a high employee um, uh, uh, 
you know, income per employee, you've got much more flexibility in what you do and you are able to take more risks. And so that's the only thing I would kind of probably advise myself in the past is maybe, you know, to pick to a, a slightly um, uh, different industry to go into. But on saying that, I really enjoyed the agency space and I've learned a lot. I've made a lot of friends. I've made some really, really great business connections. And so I probably wouldn't change that for the world. And I think this is one of the challenges when you give people advice is, you know, you generally don't take your own advice, um, you know, which is which is the way, you know. Um, but but the other thing as well, I mean, I think in terms of advice, you know, this is also why I'm really interested in coaching. When I'm advising founders around particular strategies, I'm I'm giving advice. But when I'm working with product leaders and when I'm working with founders in a coaching capacity, it's less about giving advice. It's more about holding space and being able to have conversations to help them come to the answer. Um, I think advice can be really challenging because you give advice from your own perspective, but the people you're helping have a completely different perspective. And I think if you give the wrong advice, you can damage relationships, you can damage businesses. I've seen advisors destroy businesses because they said you absolutely must do that. And then the founder's done it and it's and it's not gone well. So I think advice can be really valuable, but also be really tricky. I think I spend about sort of 60% of my time coaching and about 40% of my time advising because I think actually having a dialogue with, with people in order to ask the right questions, to coax out what they think the right approach is, to open up more avenues and more opportunities, but to put the, the solution in their hands so they have agency um, is really important. People want to have agency in their lives. And having someone just come in and say, well, you need to do X, Y, and Z can feel quite, um, make you feel quite impotent. Whereas having a relationship with somebody who gets the best out of you and allows you to have really, really good conversations and, and is a bit more of a co-pilot, they're there to help. They're not there to fly the plane for you, I think is, is a really, really great relationship, which is why I try and do 40% advising, 60% coaching. It's interesting, it kind of mirrors what we were talking about earlier, Andy, around, I think, data informing decisions rather than making decisions. It's around really helping, giving you the tools you need to find your own path. Um, let me ask, when others have held space for you, um, have you, are there any kind of, a, I guess, best or, or memorable advice or things that people have said to you that have, that have made a difference? That's a really, again, that's a really difficult question because um, I, I, have been, I have been incredibly lucky. Um, I, I, I see a lot of, found, being a founder can be quite a lonely and an isolating um, job. Being a CEO, being a CMO, being a CPO, you are usually one of your kind in the organization. Um, and all eyes are looking on you to make decisions and, and making the decisions can be really, really scary. I see a lot of people in those roles that lack a good support network. Um, I have over the years built up a really, really fantastic support network. Um, I can't pinpoint any single you know, again, sliding doors a moment where someone said a thing that's fundamentally changed my career because I actually don't think that's how how advice works. I think it's a lovely Hollywood kind of book-based kind of, you know, view of the world that somebody sweeps in, some kind of Yoda-like, kind of Ben Kenobi-like mentor comes in, says this one piece of advice that changes you around. And and look, it, it works great for books. It works great for podcasts. It, it's, it's a wonderful story. But I actually think this knowledge is accreted over time. I think that I've benefited from thousands and thousands and thousands of small interactions. And each one of those interactions has nudged me in a direction that has been a cumulative effect of where I've got to today. 
I have built relationships when I was in the um, in the agency space with dozens and dozens and dozens of founders of agencies who were bigger than me, who had who had been running for longer than me, and each of those conversations I have, each of those meals I'd have, each of those you know in the hallways post conference talk I had have all given me an insight into a future um, and the set of decisions those people had faced and how they managed to solve those decisions that I wouldn't have had until I'd got there. And so being able to have somebody almost come back from the future and say, look, you're going to get into this experience in in a year or so's time. And this is what we did prepares you for that. But, it, but like I say, it's not a single thing. It's it's dozens and dozens and dozens of things that mount over time. The same is true with the kind of advice that I'm giving nowadays to founders. Like, I, I you know, I think I'd probably be doing a really poor job if all I went in with, with one piece of advice is, hey, you've got to do this. Like, I'd be a one-trick pony. What it is, is about giving, is about listening. You know, it's using the design mentality. It's about asking lots of questions. It's about understanding the context. It's about exploring the space. It's about opening up possibilities. Um, and it's the thousand small decisions you make every day. And it's the same with an interface. You know, like you see companies that, that are doing fundamentally the same thing, but the interfaces look vastly different. It's because of a thousand small little individual decisions have shaped that. And so I'm much more interested in the thousand small decisions, even though the one decision or the one piece of advice is often that kind of Hollywood, you know, Hollywood thing that people grab hold of. But I just don't think that's how good decision making and good mentorship works it's all the work behind the scenes i think it's a bit like an iceberg everything is really under the water and helps you kind of uh, find the space to 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 make your own decision and just there's just one so there's one final thing which i heard the other day which i really liked like being successful in business um to some extent is arguably like buying a lottery ticket and i think there are a lot of pundits in the world that pick up a lottery ticket successful and then spend the rest of their life writing books or giving advice saying, hey, look, here are my lottery ticket numbers. You should get the same numbers. But your lottery ticket numbers to win are going to be completely different from theirs. And so I think, yeah, I think it's it's important not to take, you know, everyone will tell you this is the one thing you have to do. I think there's a whole bunch of different future paths and you need to take your own path. And so I think having mentors and coaches will help you on the journey and help you make better decisions, but they're not going to be the ones saying, yeah, just write these lottery ticket numbers down. They work for me. They're going to work for you. Yeah. I don't think that works either. It's, um, it's, I think resilience is a really huge part of this too, and confidence and really understanding how to forge your own path. So it's really around training a way of thinking like a, uh, a design structure or and, and a way of thinking to apply things. You're so prolific in your writing and sharing and speaking, um, which is an amazing resource for so many different people. Um, what motivates you to share that knowledge and to kind of uh, keep talking on the platforms that you have? I think there's a big paying it forward. I mean, um, I, I, I joined the internet in the early stages of the internet. Um, and the community on the internet was a community of of makers, of hackers, of of geeks, of, of enthusiasts. And in the early stages, the only way you could get onto the internet is through the benefit of other people, through people writing articles, through people posting on mailing lists. And so I feel that I was kind of I was born into this environment where um a willingness to share was a key part of the early sort of fundamental underpinnings of of, of my career in the culture. So I've always felt um 
a deep appreciation for those early people that that shared their knowledge with me and I've always felt a uh, um, responsibility to do the same for the, the 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 people coming after me so there really is a kind of a, a paying it forward kind of uh, mentality um, and I think you'll find that in many kind of people who were around the web in the kind of like the, the 90s it's just it's just kind of part of uh, of tech culture um, also as I said before like I really have a strong belief that that design and, and, and product can make people's lives better um, and so you know I want to use the knowledge I've built up to um, help you know help yeah, put more value you know into the world and so yeah if if I can help people if I can nudge people in the right direction if I can share my knowledge and it and it uh, you know widely and freely and it and it inspires somebody you know to to make a better product to do better in their career then then you know that that can only be a good thing I've really enjoyed kind of consuming your some of your writing content and your speaking content as well and one thing that um actually really spoke to me was the fact that you would talk about other things outside of, I guess, what you're famous for in the UX world. You would talk about the 50 most unusual things that you've done. I was embarrassed that I had, I think I there were only three things that I had on your on your list of 50 things. But things like that, that you are a pilot, you learn to fly and all, and, 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 and all you're diving. I thought that was so interesting. Um, but it has inspired me to be a bit nosy if you'll allow it. And I wanted to ask you a couple of quick fire questions. I'm curious where you go to feed your brain creatively. Um, are there like websites or people you follow to stay on the pulse of things or just like where do you go to feed your kind of that creative part of your brain? I would argue that it's it's mostly community stuff. So there are obviously kind of sort of, you know, travel websites I go to and interior design websites and, 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 and um, kind of sort of lifestyle websites I go to that I consume content. But I think in general, I am a, a somebody who is very much in that kind of the, the middle of the river of, of kind of social media. So I, you know, I discovered Twitter early on. I found it a really great resource in the early stages at where my community was. And um, for, for many, many years, Twitter was kind of my source of this kind of inspiration. And one of the things that is really nice about those, those kind of um, mediums is if you go to a a travel website, you'll only get information about travel. If you go to a food website, you'll only get information about food. If you go to a social media site where you're full of interesting people and you create a list of people based on who you find valuable, you get these kind of lovely serendipitous moments where you suddenly, someone shares something. You're like, I didn't know you into that or I'd never seen that before. And so I think manufacturing serendipity is really important. And I think so not being too much of a specialist and not only focusing on one area um allows you to kind of pull pull from 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 different things there's a there's an author called Stephen Berlin Johnson who I know a little bit um and he wrote this really good book called uh, where ideas come from um and he talks about this idea of the adjacent possible and the adjacent possible is this concept that um you'll see around the world like innovations will pop up at the same time like the light bulb was being worked on in 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 Scotland and America at the same time and the two people that were working on it didn't connect with each other they didn't know that each other was working on this so why did these things pop up at the same time well they popped up because all of the things that allowed the creation of the light bulb had manifested people were working with electricity people could blow glass people could understand how to make filaments and so all of these things were there and what it required was somebody to join the dots 
And the way back in the sort of Victorian sort of Edwardian time, the way these these dots happen would be going to a coffee house. You go to a coffee house and you'd be sat next to an industrialist and a scientist and a chemist, you know, or a physicist and a chemist and a glass blower. And you get into a conversation and suddenly somehow all of these dots from different dots from different industries and sectors would be joined. And you go, wow, what if I did this and this and this and brought it together? And so I think there's huge value in going to places where different people from different backgrounds hang out, where they share different thoughts and, and, and ideas and innovations that allow you to kind of join those dots. I think that's kind of entrepreneurialism in a nutshell. Entrepreneurs are magpies. They they gather lots of things which seem like they're they're disparate, but are able to make those connections. I think designers are really good at doing that as well. Um, it's this concept of abductive reasoning. You know, the um, when you see a... You see a, a, a TV detective show. They stick all of the kind of clues on the board and then the cogs go around the brain and they suddenly like sort of are able to make these kind of creative leaps and join things together. And so I try and lean into um, areas that are outside of my domain of knowledge and surround myself with experts in different areas because it allows me to join the dots. I mean, you know, I'm a designer, but AI is fascinating at the moment. Um and so I'm kind of leaning into that to kind of hang around with people. I'm actually, um, all, I've organized a retreat in Norway in a couple of months time um, at the uh, at the venue where they filmed the movie Ex Machina. And I'm bringing academics and ethicists and um, people working on robotics and science fiction authors together to talk about AI and the, the future of AI. Because I think if you only look at AI from an engineering perspective, or you only look at AI from a design perspective or, or a finance perspective, you're going to miss something. But if you can bring people from all these different backgrounds, you are able to get a much better, broader picture. And so that's what I really, really love doing. Amazing. Um What's your last impulse buy? I again, I'm I'm not very. I, I have to admit, I'm not super impulsive. And actually, I am somebody who values experiences over objects. Um, so um, I do love beautiful designer furniture, and I've got a few lovely pieces around the house that I really, really like. I've got an even bigger list of things I want to buy, but but generally, it will be it will be experiences. It will be going out to a beautiful meal. Um, uh it will be yeah you know, travel it will be those kind of things and so none of them generally are, are impulse buys but they're all things of like you know hey if i want to if you know if i have this limited stock of money where am i going to get the most hedonic value from and usually it's kind of doing stuff so yeah i just had a lovely holiday in, in mexico and that was um wasn't impulsive but it was absolutely amazing and a brilliant recharge um I just ate it uh, for a second time in a beautiful restaurant up just um, south of um, Birmingham called Grace and Saver. Absolutely recommend it. Um, it only launched about 12 months ago. It's already got its first Michelin star. I reckon it will get its second and possibly even its third Michelin star in the next couple of years. I think the food is really, really solid. And so it's those kind of things that I, I really like. But yeah, um, I'm not somebody that swans around and, and, and sees a thing and goes, oh, I'm going to go and, and, and spend a ton of money on it. It's usually... It's usually been in my backlog for about three or four months. And I'm thinking, oh, I really, really want that. Is now the right time? Do you have a favorite color? And if you do, which I'm hoping you do, I'm curious how you bring this into your life. So, for example, do you have an insane collection of orange socks? <laughs> I always find the kind of question of do you have a favorite really, really challenging. A lot of people seem to have favorites. But um, and again, I, I don't mean this as an insulting way, but I think that. 
it, it's the kind of thing that kind of kids do. It's a, it's a it's a way of kind of creating identity. I have a favorite color. I have a favorite food. I have a favorite movie. Um, but it's also somewhat limiting. Um, I think the world is so full of amazing opportunities that that I think, you know, the food that I like varies so much in context. You know, what mood I'm in, what country I'm in, what you know, you know. Sometimes it can be, yeah, I, lo- I love a cheap pizza on the streets of Italy, but also I love going to a mission style restaurant. Like if someone asked me like what your what your um, last meal would be, it'd be an impossible thing because I don't have an easily, you know, a lot of people, oh yeah, pizza's my favorite. But I think I think that that in a weird kind of way that kind of lacks a level of imagination and, and, and dismisses the nuance in the world. So um, the same kind of answer in a weird kind of way goes to color. I mean, uh, you know, my, my wardrobe is really boring and most of my, clothes are blue so i think if if you were to know me you'd say well clearly your favorite color is blue um but yeah i don't i mean i think i think i think having a favorite is a bit of a crutch and i think particularly from a designer's perspective um you want to go into problems not like i think designers are problem solvers rather than artists i think if i was an artist and i you know i might have a favorite pigment that that kind of somehow touches my soul or as has some story about my childhood or whatever, then that's fine. But I think as a designer, actually ditching those sort of favorite things is the the correct approach because you are there to serve other people and you are there to understand what the right solution is. You know, if every website you build is is corporate blue, you know, which a lot of websites are at the moment, things are going to be boring. So um yeah, it's an annoying answer because I I I generally do not have favorite anythings. But I have I have a whole spectrum of things which I've liked. Amazing. Um, what title would you give to your biopic or autobiography? Wouldn't write my own biography. Um, and I think, I don't know if it would be particularly interesting. Um, and I so I think I would have to leave that to to whatever poor sod decided to think that it was a good idea to write my biography and, and, and to, to come up with, 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 um, with that title themselves. So sorry, I don't have an answer to that, I'm afraid. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for... Um... Going with the flow with the kind of extra nosy questions. It's my pleasure. It was, it was fun. Thank you so much, Andy. So that concludes Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast, no matter your platform. And of course, start your journey with us today at labelsessions.com.